Thanks for coming. Uh, today's session is the use of viscose su supplementation in FDA-approved and non-approved joints with Dr. Ramon Cuevas. Dr. Cuevas is Affiliate Assistant Professor at University of Miami Miller School of Medicine and Chief at uh, Physical, Physical Medicine Rehabilitation and Pain Man Management Service at West Palm Beach VA Medical Center. So please join me in welcoming him today. Good morning. Thanks, David. Um, if you guys can see from back there, it's okay. I don't want to make anybody come all the way here, but I can promise one thing. I'm not going to pimp anybody. I'm not going to ask any questions. I'm going to let you ask questions. So if you want to move forward, feel free to do so. I'm not going to be pimping anybody, so don't feel afraid of that. So uh, I just, uh, uh, just want to see like a show of hands. Who has actually heard about viscous supplementation here? Fantastic. Who has actually done this, injected this? Great. This is, this is fantastic. But the, the, the purpose of this um, talk today, or this, um, this presentation is going to be to give a background. I, I don't have anything to disclose, by the way, regarding this. Uh, to give a background on what is viscosupplementation in a nutshell, you know, what it is, what's, what's it all about and to talk about the evidence behind the use of viscosupplementation, uh, speaking both of studies and things that are done in the United States as well as worldwide, so you can get a, a, a little bit broader picture of what viscosupplementation is for and used uh, throughout the uh, different countries. <clears throat> We're going to be describing the indications, list the various products available there with their shared and unique features, because some are, you know, they have a lot of similarities, but they have some differences amongst, you know, the different products available. We'll talk about some contraindications, some of the potential side effects that we could see whenever these products are used. And we'll review the medical evidence for the use of viscous supplements, both in the United States, using the FDA-approved indications. And, of course, the disclosure here is that I'm going to be talking about certain things that are non-FDA-approved or are off-label, and I'm going to be mentioning those throughout the talk as well. So uh, why is this uh, an important topic? Because uh, I think that it's actually key to realize that osteoarthritis affects a pretty large segment of our population. And it's actually the fastest increasing major health condition that we see, particularly in baby boomers and folks that are actually approaching you know, adulthood on. Uh, it actually affects a lot of folks that are in working during their working years or working age and actually can have a large impact in their productivity and absenteeism, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> so what contributes to osteoarthritis? There are a bunch of different factors that could play an important role here. And one really important one that at times is overlooked are genetic factors. You know, what I, I see somebody you know, this is a question that I heard, that I, that I hear all the time, say, but doctor, I mean, how, how come I have this now? I've never had this before. I say, well, well, ma'am, now you have it. Um, but the, the main thing is to start looking at, did your parents have a problem with their knees and their hips, et cetera? You're, do you have uh, brothers and sisters that have these problems? Uh, how about your grandparents? And lo and behold, I mean, many times I say, yeah, I remember, you know, my mom used to have, problems with this. She used to came when she was 50 and 
Uh, she always had problems with her knees, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> because, you know, it's uh, a little bit, some people try to jump to the conclusion that this happened at work or happened because I had this injury, et cetera. And a lot of the times, it's actually something that genetically predisposes you to develop this. Of course, there are some ethnic factors, some age-related, of course, as you increase in age, some other nutritional factors. Gender plays a role. Females are more predisposed than males to develop this. And then there's a, a big one that I want to actually spend a little bit on time, of time on, and I will, we'll talk a little bit more about this, about some interesting literature out there regarding obesity. Obesity, one, I, you know, I, I really uh, enjoy this topic in, you know, developing, be, developing this topic because what's being interesting about obesity is that it's being shown to not only affect weight-bearing joints, but also non-weight-bearing joints. And that begs the question as, of, is it really a mechanical kind of pressure weight per se issue, or are there any other systemic uh, factors here, systemic uh, inflammation type component that may be at play in the development of osteoarthritis? And that has actually been coming from the literature on development of osteoarthritis of the shoulder, metacarpal joints, et cetera, that are non-weight-bearing joints. And in some folks that have obesity, these are quite prevalent and has actually prompted some researchers to start talking about a condition called metabolic osteoarthritis, perhaps even part of the metabolic syndrome, which is a very, very interesting topic on itself. Now, uh, hyaluronic acid, which is going to be the basis of what all these supplements are made out of uh, has actually reached prominence, prominence in the cosmetic practice because this is a lot of, I mean, not, not so much about uh, like some other cosmetic treatments such as botulinum toxins that I'm doing a talk on this afternoon, by the way, at around three in the afternoon, the, the use of botulinum toxins for uh, neuromodulation in pain management, but these ones are actually known as the injectable fillers like, you know, your uh, juvederm and the like that are used for augmentation around the lips and different parts of the face, et cetera. It's actually the same type of component, which is hyaluronic, hyaluronic acid. This is a naturally occurring biopolymer, uh, first described, you know, many, many years ago, 1934. And it's, again, used in a wide range of medical applications, ranging, as you see there, from neurosurgery to cutaneous wound healing. It is a polysaccharide biopolymer that is uh, composed of continuously repeating molecular sequ sequences of something that you've heard a lot about probably, you know, which is glucuronic acid and acetylglucosamine. So one of the important things in this uh, slide is paying attention to the molecular mass of hyaluronic acid, which is in the neighborhood of 6,500 to 11,000. Uh, um, kilodaltons. But when it depolymerizes in osteoarthritis, it actually loses a lot of that viscosity and it goes down to the range of 27 to 4,500 kilodaltons. What that does is that it actually, it's clear at higher rates, it becomes thinner, and it actually loses a lot of the properties that it's there to, that are there to actually protect the joint and actually promote that there's more uh, cartilage breakdown, etc. So by reducing that viscous, uh, 
is hitting the synovial fluid, then we have some of the consequences that we'll see in osteoarthritis. <clears throat> this is what the what, what we feel or what has been actually researched regarding the uh, hyaluronic acid in the synovial fluid, what, what it actually does. This is the native hyaluronic acid. It has anti-inflammatory properties and analgesic properties, inhibits macrophage phagocytosis and neutrophil adherence, reduces the release of a very important uh, compound, which is arachinonic acid from the synovial fibroblast. This is part of the inflammatory cascade, and possibility of even binding substance P in you know, reducing pain. Now, exogenous, or the ones that we are injecting exogenously, it is thought to actually improve the viscosity of the synovial fluid that we know has actually been brought down because of this osteoarthritic changes, and it allows for a smoother movement and reduced pain in, in this condition on folks that have actually osteoarthritis. It is also claimed to exert also analgesic and anti-inflammatory properties and possibly protect the articular cartilage as well. <clears throat> the mechanism of action, however, which is actually quite interesting, uh, seeing that there are so many products, and we'll mention some of them in a little bit, is still not clear. You know, why, how is it that these, uh, that these actual supplements work? And they, they are thought to actually replenish some of the joint fluid, improve the cushioning properties. I mean, some of the stuff that we hear all the time, you know, uh, reduce uh, rate of cell death, synovitis, uh, increase the production of native hyaluronic acid, you know, to replenish it with normal good uh, hyaluronic acid and uh, induce some enzymatic changes. Now, what's actually quite interesting about this is that the, what has been studied, which is not really, hasn't, there has not been a whole lot of uh, studying on this, but the, the couple studies that are available have actually shown that the clinical effects of these substances when they get injected into the joints last way, way, way longer than the residence time into the joint. What, what, what has been actually shown, particularly in animal models, is that the hyaluronic acid or the visco supplement, whenever it's injected, within generally anywhere between a week to a week and a half, couple of weeks, it's no longer there. It's actually get degraded enzymatically into mostly water. So why is it that these compounds can provide relief that lasts many weeks to sometimes many months? In fact, what is considered the standard uh, you know, outcome measure for their successful use is when somebody has pain relief that could be manifested through, you know, decreasing the pain scores, increasing the functional range of motion and functional activities that last six plus months. So think about six months and when the compound is no longer there within a couple of weeks already. So what's actually behind this, I, we really don't know, but some of those mechanisms that I described in the previous slides could actually be what is actually happening here that is, that is inducing the production of normal hyaluronic acid and is causing changes that, are, that go beyond the residence time, of course, of this in the joint. So it may be actually reestablishing the homeostasis of the joint fluid, and that is what could be leading to these long-lasting effects. Now let's uh, mention now what 
these are FDA approved for. The important thing to realize here is that it, they're just approved by the FDA for their use in osteoarthritis of the knee only. And this is where I'm gonna be mentioning other joints later that are off label. But the specific uh, wording basically is this one, you know, it's for pain in osteoarthritis of the knee in patients who have failed to respond adequately to conservative non-pharmacological therapy and simple analgesics. So there's no such thing as we need to try you know, a corticosteroid injection before. I mean, this could be almost like nearly first line in some patients, and that could be an important use for these agents. But basically, it should be done, generally speaking, early in the course of the condition when you're looking at folks that have very severe, you know, stage three, four, et cetera, osteoarthritis. We're talking about folks that will have very likely a lesser response, or they may not respond as well as folks that have osteoarthritis in the milder uh, uh, cases. Now, this is, that's not to say that even though it's not really meant for severe osteoarthritis, that's not to say that it cannot be used, and I'll just give you some examples when it can actually be quite useful for that as well. These are the products that are available in the United States for use commercially at this point in time. As you can see here, there are essentially six products that actually become eight. I'll explain that. You have these six products here, some of which, particularly Simvisc and Orthobisc, have another iteration of the product, which are called Simvisc 1 and this one that's called Monovisc. And what those products are, they are exactly the same as the, the uh, parent product, so to say, but they're only one single injection. Uh, and let me just tell you a little bit about how this, for the folks that haven't done this before, you get an idea of how these are actually administered. These are administered at weekly intervals, intraticular injections that range anywhere from the single use products would be like the, Simb I'm sorry, the Simbisc one, oops, and, uh, and the Monobisc that are, uh, on, and the gel one, I'm sorry, as well are only one intraticular injection and that's it. The other products, you have to bring the patient weekly anywhere from three times all the way to maybe five times at weekly intervals to do weekly injections. The, uh, these, these products that are only a single time have the advantage of, uh, you know, of course it's one, only one procedure as opposed to three or five. There's a lesser chance, uh, chance of developing any kind of uh, complication because you're doing it only once as opposed to multiple times less taxing for the patient, getting injected, et cetera. If the patients that are coming from far away, they don't have to come weekly and the like. So that's the advantage of those. On the other hand, they tend to have a higher uh, volume of the injected and they could be a little bit more, more uncomfortable when you inject them. Uh, here we have basically the protocol of what I, you know, so that you can follow this is like Simbis would be three weekly injections of two milliliters. Simbis one is one single injection of six milliliters and so on and so forth. You see like high algam from three to five, uh, two milliliter injection, um, and, and you know, three to four for orthobase and monobase is one, et cetera. And you see here the molecular weight, which is actually a very interesting concept as well. The couple things that I want to point out is that the highest molecular weight is Simbisc and Simbisc one. But remember what the native 
high hyaluronic acid molecular weight was, and it's actually higher than all of these compounds here. So these, even though we're trying to replenish, we're trying to replace with healthy, so to say, hyaluronic acid, they don't really reach the molecular weight that is necessary to actually uh, mimic exactly what these, uh, the, the normal or uh, native uh, hyaluronic acid is. This is the one that is the closest and that makes it the thickest. One important aspect about injecting these, and the folks that have done this have you know, had experience with this, is that you typically have to use a large bore needle. You are going to have a hard time pushing some of these through a 22 gauge, for instance. You may have to use an 18 gauge, particularly for Simbisc and Simbisc 1, and that's a large needle. So actually that tends to be a little bit more uncomfortable. You have to do typically do some local anesthesia for the patient and then through the same needle inject. Uh, being thicker, they feel kind of a little bit awkward, a little bit weird when they first stand up after having this injected and the like. So uh, again, it's, uh, it's some of the little nuances of these uh, types of injection. <clears throat> so what are the practical indications? Yes, ma'am. Excellent question, thank you. Uh, just for, for everybody to, whoever didn't uh, hear her, is like, does the higher molecular weight trans, you know, translates into longer relief? And the answer is that we don't know. That hasn't been studied, that hasn't been proven. It is theorized that it could, and it makes perfect sense because you're looking at a situation where you're trying to mimic or, or kind of have something that is similar to the native one. But it, there, there, really, there are just a couple of studies that have compared one product to the other, and the differences have been actually so little that are generally not, I mean, even if they reach statistical significance, uh, it's barely, and clinically significant, it really hasn't been anything that, that is remarkable in any way, shape, or form. But, you know, that's a, that's a, good, that's a good point. The, the one point that I want to make is that, again, the, being thicker, and this is, that, that would definitely be a, a limitation if products were made to have higher molecular weight than, say, Simbix and Simbix-1, because even Simbix-1, having that kind of borderline molecular weight that approaches the native hyaluronic acid is actually very thick. I mean, when you see that going through a needle, it looks like, like gel. It looks like, like gelatin. So that could be another potential issue of, being able to inject it, that would be actually hard. Um, so when should we use this, generally speaking, with patients that have pain that affects their daily activities, uh, patients that are sensitive to NSAIDs or don't get adequate relief, patients that don't get an adequate pain relief from some more conservative measures such as physical therapy modalities, weight loss, et cetera. And we use it quite often with patients that don't get adequate pain relief from aspiration or corticosteroid injections, uh, or patients that want to avoid this. And I'll give you some examples of that. Patient that may want to avoid this is somebody that is generally a younger patient that we know that may actually require these injections repeatedly for potentially many years to come, and you don't want to get into the possibility of developing some of the complications that you see with repeated multiple times over the year uh, corticosteroid injections. So that would be another good candidate there. Then you have patients that either want to avoid surgery, postpone surgery, or patients that are just plain and simple non-surgical candidates because of their other comorbidities, etc. Um, 
Let's talk now about the uh, European Union, what's approved there, so you get an idea, a glimpse. I mean, we, I, I mentioned there were six products here, become eight there. There are some products there that are approved uh, dating back many years already uh, for the shoulder, hip, knee, ankle, same thing in Canada as well, in Latin America as well. Uh, there's uh, products that are approved for the hip, as you can see there. In fact, the, the FDA approved the first approved product in the United States was Simvisc, the series of three injections, and it's going to be 20 years next year, so it's 19 years ago that was first approved. So these things have been around for a while. Now, the big picture is that uh, there's this recent article you know, published earlier this year uh, in Italy where this author from Italy is actually describing that there are 62 such products that are actually marketed in Italy, which is pretty remarkable. You know, why, you know, how come they have so many? As you can see there, which is also even more interesting to me, is that these are all the ones that are approved, and these are the ones that are proven effective. So a lot of these things are actually used, and there's actually no real evidence of any kind of efficacy regarding some of these products. And of course, you know, in the European Union and, and in, in pretty much in, in virtually most other countries, uh, except for the United States, their, their regulations are a little bit less stringent in terms of approval by regulatory agencies, and that's why you see a lot more of these products <clears throat> used there. Now, uh, let's talk for a minute about the contraindications and warnings that are important here. Absolute contraindications would be, of course, like any other injectable, you know, any kind of infection or skin breakdown at the injection sites. Uh, and allergy to any one of the components. And an important aspect here is that most of these products are actually derived from, uh, you know, extracts of the rooster combs, and they can, anybody who has actually any allergy to eggs or any kind of avian products or, you know, feathers and the like, it's an important question to ask because they could potentially be allergic to these products. They could develop an allergy. There's one, uh, there are two of the products that are available here that have, uh, that you could safely use, and generally those would be um, orthobisc, that is uh, generally engineering, such as, and so is euflexa, that particularly, you know, with orthobisc, there is a, it's a process that may actually, some of those patients may have some cross-reactivity, uh, but for euflexa, if somebody has an absolute allergy to feathers or eggs, et cetera, you could use it. So that's a way to get around it. Uh, relative uh, contraindications here are when you have somebody who has an internal derangement, that is somebody has an ACL tear, somebody that has a meniscal tear, et cetera, for the knee or you know, labral tear for the shoulder, et cetera. Uh, not that you cannot use it, but you know that there's something mechanical that is a problem there as well. Uh, when you have a large effusion, you can do it, but you should aspirate the effusion first and then actually inject the viscous supplement. And when you have somebody that has a, a systemic bleeding disorder, like any other you know, uh, procedure, you have to be a little bit cautious about that, or somebody who's anticoagulated, not that it cannot be done, but you have to basically use guidelines to, to make sure that you're not having somebody that could end up bleeding excessively. So what are the downsides of these com uh, compounds? Uh, one important downside is their cost. They tend to be quite costly. I'm not mentioning that there. But sometimes, you know, uh, if it's somebody that's paying out of pocket, it could be actually quite costly. Insurance companies, some you may require so pre-authorization and the like, and you need to show, you know, sometimes letters of medical necessity and things of that sort. But they could be actually quite expensive. But when you have somebody who has actually failed multiple other 
uh, modalities of treatment, it could be something that keeps that person from having to come to the ER or having to come with exacerbations so often, and you can just simply, I, I, I do have a, a number of patients that just pretty almost religiously come every seven, six, seven months and get their injections and they're happy campers and they don't ever call or bother anybody. They just simply come and get their injections and they're really, really, really happy about those. Um, of course, you can have uh, infection and hemarthrosis like with any other procedure, but the important one is this uh, pseudoseptic joint reaction. And it is, this is felt to be some sort of inflammatory reaction of, uh, of some type that is uh, essentially a, a body's response to something that is foreign that has been injected. And it, this has been described quite frequently, specifically with Simvisc and Simvisc-1. So the, the challenge in a situation like this one is be able to distinguish this from a, a true septic joint that will require antibiotics and will require you know, IV antibiotics and drainage, et cetera. And usually this is something that will develop within 24 to 72 hours. Usually the patient will have swelling, maybe a little bit red, maybe painful, but usually you don't see an elevated white count, you don't see an elevated sed rate, things that are more systemic markers you won't see in these folks. You don't have a fever generally. And sometimes you just have to observe and just kind of use cold compresses for a couple of days and it goes away. And usually, be, even if this develops, you could end up having a good response to the injection, but the first two or three days are a little bit challenging for the patient. Uh, with the others, uh, other than Simvisc, this is rarely seen. And that's another thing that actually you have to wonder, is it because of the higher molecular weight? I mean, we really don't know, but it, it happens in this, with that particular compound. <clears throat> Some of the uh, unique features of some of these products are, as I have mentioned before, one injection with Simvisc, one gel one, and monovisc. Uh, Uflexa is 100% uh, purely genetically engineered, and you know again, Uflexa and Orthovisc are non-avian in nature, as well as uh, highest viscosity of Simvisc that I have mentioned before. This is just a glimpse of other products that are available out there, not here in the United States, but they're available usually in Europe and other countries where a couple of interesting things here, uh, probably the most interesting one here that I found is that this one that's called Single, that it's a high hyaluronic acid that is analogous to orthormonovisc and triamcinolone mixed. You may have, some of you may have seen how some folks maybe the first visit they inject a corticosteroid to kind of reduce the inflammation on the patient and then bring the patient back a week later and start doing the series of injections. That, again, it's common practice. It's not necessarily that it's proven, that it should be done that way, et cetera, but these this folks here have actually developed the mixture of both the hyaluronic acid product and a corticosteroid. It's not really known if this is gonna be better, beneficial, or if it, any one of the products is gonna interfere with the others, et cetera, but just, uh, just kind of like an FYI. Um, the application technique, a couple of things that I want to emphasize here are specifically the importance of using guiding methods, mainly when you're not doing knee injections. The knee injections, for the most part, for most experienced practitioners, are pretty straightforward. You don't necessarily need to use ultrasound or, or fluoroscopy for those. They can be done anatomically guided, sort of like, uh, quote, blind. Uh, if you have 
a lot of experience with this, you're virtually going to be there 100% of the time. But particularly when you're talking about shoulder, intraarticular, and particularly when you have severe osteoarthritis or more advanced osteoarthritis, and certainly hip, you, it's going to be like a, you know, like a flip of a coin, you know, that you're going to be inside or outside. When you're injecting a corticosteroid, keep in mind that if you're injecting periarticularly around the joint, you could still have a pretty good significant pain relief effect. If you're injecting something like this that really has to be inside this synovial fluid you know, cavity, you are potentially not only not going to have good results, but you're going to create potentially some inflammation and more of a, of a you know, rejection reaction. So it's important to use guiding methods. Uh, aspirate the effusion. Use a local anesthetic with a large bore needle. Uh, strict sterile technique, of course, like whenever we inject any joint. Uh, have the patient... Uh, rest for 48 to 72 hours, kind of relative rest. Don't let them go to the gym again. Don't let them jog, et cetera, et cetera. Tell them to take it easy for two or three days. And you have to also warn them about the delay onset. The interesting thing about these substances also is that they don't work immediately like the corticosteroids that within, you know, probably a few minutes, a couple hours, the patient is doing, you know, really, really well. It may take several days actually to feel the full effect. It may even take a, uh, up to a couple of weeks at times. <clears throat> These are the techniques that you could use for, you know, depiction of the techniques that you can use for injecting the knee. This is like a patient sitting, 90 degree angle, straight, you know, lateral, you know, infrapatellar approach. This is more the suprapatellar approach should be kind of directed a little bit more that way where you are going to this should be the preferred approach when you have an effusion, when you want to aspirate the effusion and then replenish the fluid with the, with the hyaluronic acid product uh, because you want to get rid of all, the, all that inflammatory fluid that you have there so you can give a better chance of this to work uh, better. If you try to aspirate the knee in this position, many times because of the pressure buildup in the knee, some of it may actually go more posteriorly and you may not be able to get a large aspirate that you will get if you do it using this approach, and this is the preferred approach when you want to aspirate, of course. <clears throat> these are the techniques. I mean, these are uh, pictures, uh, fluoroscopically guided pictures of both the, here's the hip and then the shoulder, you know, intracapsular pattern of the dye going inside the capsule that will, when we inject the, the uh, hyaluronic acid product, will be inside the joint, which is what we want. These are pictures from one of the studies that we published not too long ago that I'll be discussing it a little bit further down. So let's talk a little bit about the evidence, and I want to, to emphasize that, uh, and I make a big, a strong point towards the end, that evidence-based medicine is not just randomized control you know, trials. There's a lot of evidence that goes on into your own clinical practice with your own patients, with your own population, et cetera, you could see things that may not be shown in some of the randomized controlled trials and could actually shape the way that you practice uh, medicine many times. But here, the, the, a couple interesting points is that despite the approval by the FDA and longstanding use, the efficacy has been continuously challenged, right? Uh, specifically, one major player here is the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery. They have actually made, back in 2013, they gave a strong recommendation against their use. Now, the question is, why did they do that? Well, I, I, I have my own uh, personal opinions about it, but basically, 
there are there's actually data that is actually quite conflicting at times, but the problem is that when you look at the data and you will see in some of the other slides, it's like, what are they using as outcome? What are they, if the outcome that they're using is, it's uh, delay, for instance, in total knee replacement, well, uh, some of the patients um, are a little bit more impatient and they wanna get it done earlier. Some of the patients don't wanna get a total knee replacement no matter what. Some of the patients say, I'm young, I better do it now because if I'm let it go for another 10 years, I won't be able to handle the surgery and things like that. So the outcome in and of itself is a little bit concerning, a little bit uh, you know, problematic there. The uh, Annals of Internal Medicine, they also published something basically negative about it, saying that it's a small and clinically irrelevant benefit and with increased risk of side effects. And the Osteoarthritis Research Society International they, in 2014, they said that it was uncertain whether these were helpful or not. So I'm just giving you this initial background now. The, for the knee, the technical expert panel in the International Symposium of Intraarticular Treatments in 2013 actually criticized a lot of these other guidelines, saying that there are a lot of issues with their outcome measures, a lot of issues with the the fact that when you look at a randomized controlled trials, but you're not looking at other, at other, uh, at other you know, data uh, sources such as registers, uh, you can end up having a lot of mixed results. And they also make several other points specifically. Um, they're talking about different phenotypes of osteoarthritis that are becoming more and more uh, the talk of some of the medical research that some of these folks may have a better predisposition to respond better than others, and also uh, things such as what is going on in that joint, are there other internal derangements that actually can, can sort of sway the results in one way or another. So they're actually challenging this. Uh, it's just a little bit of uh, info on that. Now, the... Um, Cochrane database, which conducts this usually pretty good, nice reviews of the literature, they have reviewed the published clinical trials conducted in the United States, Europe, and Canada, and their conclusion has been that the viscosupplementation effectively reduces knee pain and improves function in OA, particularly five to 13 weeks after injection. So they say, you know, this is positive, this is something that should be considered. And that several of these products have greater efficacy than corticosteroid injections. So as you can see, some groups saying that it doesn't work, some others say that when they look at the data in a different way, uh, they say that it's positive. In terms of knee osteoarthritis also, there are other publications that recommend its use. As you can see here, some of the Physician of Sports Medicine in 2013, Annals of the Royal College of Surgery, uh, and the Journal of Boyne and Young Surgery, which is actually the official journal of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery, there's an article there uh, that is a review that actually says that their responses are similar even though the uh, hyaluronic acid that they use in that specific study had a better but no statistically significant response to those patients, you know, in those patients. Now let's switch gears to a couple other joints. Um, that These are the ones that are not FDA approved, so it's important you know, to keep that in mind. Um, hip osteoarthritis, uh, the VA DOD clinical practice guideline for non-surgical management of knee and hip osteoarthritis 
published in 2014, recommends against its use for two reasons, lack of high quality studies that have, this, that, that have actually shown that these delay the need of total hip arthroplasty. There's a problem there because, you know, what if the patients don't, are not candidates? What if the patients don't want them, et cetera? You have a potential outcome measure that could kind of skew the results here. And they're also recommending against it because it's, uh, it hasn't been approved by the FDA. By the way, keep that in mind. I actually practice at a VA hospital. I'm going to discuss some of the results that we had, even though it's actually recommended against. Um, there's another couple of articles here that have actually shown some evidence for its use. Um, there's uh, some poll data on 186 patients and fair quality studies that um, they actually showed that they were not associated with statistically significant improvement in pain compared to placebo. So specifically in the delay to total hip arthroplasty, again, the outcome measure potentially problematic. No high quality studies have actually even studied the response to corticosteroid injection in hip. As a matter of fact, uh, if you look at the general consensus and practice when folks are going to undergo total hip arthroplasty, it's actually common that these patients in many centers, in many settings, have never even had a trial of a corticosteroid injection. And that is probably because, you know, the doing a corticosteroid injection in a hip is a little bit more challenging because you need to have, you know, do it fluoroscopically, uh, fluoroscopically guided to be accurate than, say, a knee injection that most, uh, for the most part, orthopedic surgeons do as a trial many times before. At our center, they referred to us a lot of these patients prior to consider a total hip arthroplasty as a, as a trial for more conservative as well as at, at times diagnostic, because some of these patients can be diagnostically, you know, a, a challenge. Is the pain coming really from the hip? Is it coming from the SI joint? Is it a facet-generated pain? Is it something else that could be happening or could be a play here? So <clears throat> there are concerns about the use of um, glucocorticoids in the hip with uh, potential for osteonecrosis. Um, and again, there's no evidence to indicate which patients will benefit from intraarticular corticostrator for hip or knee in osteoarthritis. Now, these continue being pretty, you know, commonplace, something that is done sort of all the time very, you know, commonly. When we talk about the evidence for the shoulder, the evidence for the shoulder tends to be a little bit more, more uh, favorable for their use, even though there are actually uh, only a handful of studies, as I'm describing here, the effect sizes of using uh, hyaluronic acid are actually greater than the effect size for normal saline and corticosteroid injections. So they have a tendency towards being a, a you know, more uh, positive outcome when you're looking at um, specifically the shoulder. Um, there's a, a study that was published in 2014, a multi-center randomized control trial with 150 patients in each arm where they underwent weekly injections. This is a hyaluronic acid preparation that was done weekly for three weeks. Uh, and they were evaluated over the whole period of 26 weeks. And there was a, a numeric advantage of uh, use of hyaluronic acid without statistically significant, but it's what tends to 
we tend to see in most of the studies that there may not be statistically significant differences, but they tend to be a little bit better, a little bit superior to uh, the use of corticosteroids. Now, one important thing that they point out here is that a subset of patients without concomitant pathologies reach statistically significant uh, improvement, and that is the folks that probably didn't have a labral tear, they didn't have a rotator cuff tear, et cetera, that could be also contributing to the outcome. If you take those folks out of the equation and you use it strictly in patients that have straight, you know, straightforward osteoarthritis, then they tend to do better, and that makes, makes a lot of sense. Now, talk about this, um, this uh, study that we did, uh, we published uh, earlier this year in the Journal of, of Arthritis, that let me just give you a little bit of a history about how this whole thing started. Uh, we were facing the dilemma of having patients referred to us for hip and, and, uh, and shoulder severe, particularly severe osteoarthritis, in patients that were anticoagulated. So, so I mean, what do we do? Are we going to like uh, hold the anticoagulation for three weeks in a row? That's going to be a mess. That's going to be risky, et cetera. So we came up with the idea of requesting from uh, the pharmacy service in, at our hospital, the VA hospital, said, you know, we like to be able to use specifically Simbisc-1 because it's only a one-time injection. This is going back. We started doing this back in about 2009 or so, and we wanted to, if anything, hold or halt or bridge the patient, et cetera, only one time as opposed to do it three and five times. So that made perfect sense, and they went, you know, they, they went ahead and they gave us the okay to use it on those patients. So we started using it in those patients, and then we realized, we said, okay, we're, it looks like we're getting good results, fairly good results, so why don't we actually expand this to the other patients that are not anticoagulated, that instead of having to bring them three times or five times and the radiation that that entails with the fluoroscopy as well as the, the hassle to the patient, et cetera, having to come multiple times, why don't we just do it with those patients as well? So we started, we got the okay to do that as well, off-label, of course, we started doing that. And we really had no intention of doing any kind of uh, research study. We were doing this in the course of clinical practice to improve the patient's you know, uh, symptomatic improvement, et cetera. Many of these patients, by the way, were folks that, as, as you, can, you can probably imagine, is that these folks were anticoagulated, some of them. So some of them were not even surgical candidates because they have, you know, other things. They have coronary artery disease, very severe at times. They have CHF. They have, you know, history of DVT. I mean, a bunch of other things, as you can imagine when people are anticoagulated. So uh, after a few years of doing that, we, we said, well, you know, we think that this is working. We think, but let's do a true quality improvement project and look back and see what actually happened with the patients that we're doing these injections on. So we took the data from 2010 to 2014. We have 56 uh, joints injected throughout that period of time between shoulders and, and, um, and hips on 20-some patients. Some of them have repeated injections and some have bilateral injections. And we went back and did a chart review, so it was a retrospective analysis of these patients. Okay, um, you can see those are the numbers there. So that's the story, which you get the you get the background. Some of these patients, as you can see, these are actual pictures from some of the patients that were enrolled in the study uh, or were, that were reviewed. Look at this; a very severe, you know, virtually no no joint space or completely obliterated there. 
Here you have a shoulder that has actually flattening of the head of the humerus there that actually shows a very severe degree of osteoarthritis as well. So we used it in, we were not discriminating between, you know, mild, moderate, severe. We're just using it because we needed to treat, treat them symptomatically. So what we found when we look at this data was that there was uh, effective pain relief up to four months in, in approximately half of the patients. Um, one other piece of info that I forgot to mention to you before is that these patients had all failed, of course, other more conservative approaches, including corticosteroid injections. Particularly, these are folks that you do a corticosteroid injections and they come back a week and a half or two weeks later and they say, oh, doc, I'm just back to square one in health for a few days. So you cannot continue repeating this. So we, we set out to say, what is it, is there something that we can figure out, that we can look in the patient's profile that will give us an idea of who's gonna respond and who's not gonna respond? Is there a patient characteristic that could be helpful for us to actually select who do we perform these injections on? So we look at, at several things. We look at age, we look at race, number of comorbidities. We definitely include the, the, the opioid use. No question, yes. Single dose injections, how often can you repeat them? Well, you're not, I mean, to, you, technically you could repeat them every three months if you had to, but if you are doing it that often, then it becomes an issue of probably cost that is a little bit prohibitive, it's a little bit high. You're, what's considered a good, solid, good clinical response is six months that you can get the improvement that the patient doesn't need other, other type of treatments. And however, you know, again, there are many ways of looking at this. Some of these patients may, this may have like an opioid sparing effect. It could have like other medication sparing effect. It could have uh, lesser visits to the ER, you know, things of that, of that sort. So we look at all of this. We look at even at severity of the joint disease, and we found absolutely no correlation at all whatsoever when we tried to correlate this. The only one thing that we found correlation with is the last one, that it was better efficacy in lean individuals. These are the folks that had the lower BMI, okay? And what, it makes sense, you know, hip, weight-bearing joint, we found exactly the same thing for the shoulder injections. That is a non-weight-bearing joint. So we're going, you know, what's going on? Is this like the specific metabolic osteoarthritic, osteoarthritis phenotype that's at play here that could be a better responder, okay? This is some of the data of, on, on this study that you can see that this is the time to return of pain we use in this case. And basically, at four months, approximately, you know, 50% of patients had already kind of the effect had actually uh, vanished by four months. But there were even some patients, as you can see here, that the 80% range is in the, you know, six to eight months. And some patients even, you see, like all the way to 90%, all the, all the way up to one year. And this is something that we see at times with the knee injections that some patients only get them yearly. Even some patients needed even less often than that. So you will occasionally have patients that have a fantastic response that actually lasts for a very, very long time. And again, this was for the hip in blue and the shoulder for red. So now, uh, being in Vegas, have, have you guys seen this? Have you ever seen uh, the heart attack grill? It's called the heart attack grill. Um, if you're over 350 pounds, you eat for free. And they have some really interesting names for some of these burgers. It's a single bypass burger, double bypass burger, and the like. 
This, the single bypass burger has, it's, it's uh, approximately, I believe it's like 3,500 calories. Um, they flatliner fries on pure lard. They're fried in pure lard and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, so this, is, this is just a, a funny, you know, think what I found that was funny. It's actually in downtown Vegas, as a matter of fact. There's another one in, in Phoenix, I believe, Arizona. Um, this, you know, this is a problem. Whenever we have folks like this and they don't, they don't care about, you know, what they're eating, et cetera, et cetera, there's a potential issue there for osteoarthritis as well, of course, both the weight-bearing as well as all these other metabolic potentially uh, inflammatory mediators there. As we already know, like when most of us went through, you know, school, medical school, pharmacy, et cetera, PAs and, and the like, uh, years ago, RA was a, an inflammatory disease. Uh, OA isn't, and OA actually is. And if there's an inflammatory component, it's a less vigorous or less severe than in RA, and it has a different kind of mechanism, but it's, there are some inflammatory mediators there as well. So there are other joints that, are, that these are used for, and there are short series that have described use in the SI joint, the ankle, even lumbar facet joints, small amounts in the facet joints. TMJ and wrist and hand, particularly important, that's used a lot in the European Union as well. So <clears throat> in summary, in terms of the evidence, variability of findings, so we have a heterogeneous population many times, the outcome measures at times are less than desirable, um, and they're actually quite variable from one study to the other. Um, there are some conflict of interest here when you have folks that are trying to potentially have a vested interest that, like, we need to do surgery on these folks as opposed to doing other things that can delay or even prevent surgery altogether. And there could be issues with publication bias, of course. Um, there's also the use of this in less than ideal population, folks that are extremely obese, severe disease, uh, treatment failures. In fact, the, the ones that we used it for was actually a biased population in the sense that these were folks that had not responded well to many other things. So it was kind of like the last resort, and these are harder to treat cohort there to begin with. <clears throat> but if you look at the definition by David Sackett of evidence-based medicine, I'll read it here, is the conscientious, explicit, and judicious use of current best evidence in making decisions about the care of individual patients. It means integrating individual clinical expertise with the best available external clinical evidence from systematic research. So our own observations and practice with our patients as part of it is not just randomized controlled trials, so we have to keep that in mind. So to conclude, the pragmatic recommendations would be, in terms of using this type of compound, would be using younger patients with milder disease. Usually they have better response. Use with the, when the corticosteroids do not provide sufficiently long-lasting effects use guiding methods when applying. That's very, very, very important. I cannot overemphasize that. And may try with uh, select recalcitrant patients as we actually did in our uh, series. And you will have some patients that actually respond well. So uh, most physicians consider them useful uh, as a good option. It could be as an opioid sparing effect, could be a surgical surgical delay or even avoidance altogether in patients that have actually failed uh, some of the modalities. Um, 
relatively low risk, but their presence uh, may work better early with some exceptions as I have pointed out here. And use them when you're, when you're looking or you're seeking for longer lasting effects than what you will get with the corticosteroid. And pretty much that concludes it. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> Questions, please. Anybody? Yes, sir. I'm sorry, scoping the patient prior to injection? Yeah. Well, it, it's, uh, you know, that, 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 that again, you're going into something a little bit more, more invasive before going to something that is a little bit less invasive. Uh, I think that if one of the trends that you see or tendencies is that patients that have no specific soft tissue internal derangement of the joints tend to do better than the ones that do have it. So if you have some, somebody, for instance, that, and, and this we do often, actually. We have patients that have, say, had a medial meniscal, meniscal tear, and they get scoped, and they get, you know, that part of the meniscus gets shaven off, and they don't have it anymore. I mean, it's fine. They are doing okay, and then years later, they continue having problems, and is not really a recurrence, but it's just like this, it's setting in, you know, the osteoarthritis, setting in as a post-traumatic type event. And not that you do the scope before doing this or do that you have to in any way, shape, or form, but it's a patient that has already had a scope. And years later, we're doing the injection. So need, no, no need, uh, but sometimes it's done. But you don't really need it to make any kind of diagnosis or anything. In fact, this could be done usually just with simple plain films uh, as baseline and just your clinical exam. Uh, some, many of these patients have MRIs before, but not even necessary. Does that answer your question? Hmm? We do, we do, we do. And again, that's not really uh, the, the recommendation. It's generally for milder. It's generally, traditionally has been used for mild to moderate, okay? But as you can see, and sometimes we do it in this patient. In fact, the part of the patient population that we use for in this analysis that we did were patients that by any measure, they would be surgical candidates. It's just that they either, most of them, because of comorbidities, they were deemed you know, patients that were too risk to actually have the surgery, or Patients that say, you know, I, I don't want to have that. It doesn't matter how, how bad it is. I am not going to have surgery. For whatever reason, you know, they didn't want it. They said, you know, my neighbor had it, and they did horribly, so I don't want to have it. You know, whatever it is. And we used it in patients that were clearly surgical candidates that were, you know, should have had a, a, a joint replacement. Sure. Yes, sir. There, uh, that, that was, you know, that was actually brought up before, and the higher molecular weight versus lower molecular weight being superior. Uh, it, it is uh, simply a theoretical advantage, uh, but it really hasn't been proven, and in, in fact, you would need to do head-to-head -head comparisons, which are very scarce and, and very limited in terms of the number of patients and one versus another specific brand name. 
Um, it makes sense, but then the other concern is that the highest molecular weight compound that we have available for use in the United States is the one that is linked to more pseudo-arthritic type uh, reactions. So it, you know, it makes you wonder if we even increase the molecular weight of the existing ones, are we going to have even more problems? And the, and the answer is that we don't know, plain and simple. Anything else? I want to thank you for your attention and for coming early. And uh, again, have a good day.